Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for conversation with Laura Bazelon and host Lions Filmer. Welcome, everybody. Today's event is being offered in Spanish as well as in English. I am uh, Kira Epstein, the program coordinator for the new school at Commonweal. I'm here with Kamala Tully, executive director at the Mesa Refuge. And we are so pleased and honored to present the second of our Empowering Women in Today's World conversation series. Today, uh, Lions Filmer, our host, will be in conversation with Lara Bazelon, talking about embracing imbalance when it comes to life, work, and motherhood. Lyons will introduce herself and Lara more in a bit, but first I just wanted to say that Kamala and I have really enjoyed putting this series of conversations together. Um, many thanks to the West Warren Fund for providing some of the funding that allowed us to offer this series and also to offer Spanish translation, which is a new thing for us. This Empowering Women series has three events. We hosted the first one last month with immigration attorney and activist Marilena Incampier, and the recordings are already posted on the New School website and on our other media channels, which are YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We're offering both English and Spanish language audio podcasts, which are getting good play so far, and the YouTube video is also available with Spanish subtitles. We have one more event in the series after today. In October, we welcome writer, speaker, and attorney Savala Nolan for a conversation about race, gender, and law. Flavia will be with us again for that conversation, so we will have live Spanish translation available then as well. I really want to thank our host, Lyons, for guiding the conversation and making us all at ease. So I will turn it over to Mesa Refuge Executive Director Kamala Tully after I just say, Laura Bazelon and Lions Filmer and the Mesa Refuge, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you, Kira. Um, and we are so grateful to be partnering with the new school in this important and timely series and to be offering these conversations in podcasts in both Spanish and English. And I wanted to say a few words about Mesa Refuge. It's a writer's retreat uh, for activists and writers in Point Reyes Station, north of San Francisco on unceded Coast Miwok land. For the past 25 years, we've welcomed over a thousand writers, activists, radio journalists, and artists, including Lara Bazelon, who was a Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation Health Writing Fellow in 2017 and Lyons Filmer, who was a West Marin Community Fellow in 2019. Lara is also a board member of Mesa Refuge, and after experiencing the impact of her residency in 2017, Lara established the Register Fellowship for Restorative Justice in honor of Cash Register, who was wrongfully convicted of murder in 1979. Our alums are working at the edge uplifting new ideas and challenging and shaping public conversations. And in, in Ambitious Like a Mother, Lara challenges the notion of work-life balance, as you'll hear more today. Now I'd like to turn this over to Lyons, who will introduce herself and Lara. 
Thank you, Kamala. I'm Lyons Filmer, and having been in radio for some 34 years, I feel naked without headphones and a mic. <laughs> so here I am. Um, I started in college doing radio, loud music shows early, early in the mornings to get my fellow students up. Um, in the 1990s, I was a programmer at KW, excuse me, KPFA, shout out. And starting in 1999, I've been a pro volunteer programmer at KWMR, West Marin Community Radio, and uh, just an extraordinary organization itself. During the time that I was program director at KWMR, uh, Susan Tillett, the previous ED at Mesa Refuge, and I established a conversation program with current residents at the Mesa. And then, of course, using those conversations later to repeat for archives. Lara Bazelon was one of the folks I was lucky enough to talk to during that time period. Uh, I'm no longer program director. Jeffrey Manson is handily doing that job. Uh, but I continue to be a volunteer programmer at KWMR, hosting four different programs. And I'm just thrilled to be here today with Laura Bazelon. Laura is a mother, a writer, and a professor of law at the University of San Francisco's School of Law, where she directs the criminal justice, excuse me, the criminal juvenile justice and the racial justice clinical programs. As I indicated, I met Laura at Mesa Refuge Writers Retreat when she was there doing what Kamala just described, including founding a, a fellowship herself, which is a wonderful gift all around. Uh, Laura's current book is Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Career is Good for Your Kids. She's written a novel called A Good Mother, and her first book was Rectify, which was the story of overturning the wrongful conviction of cash register. She is published in many law reviews and journals, as well as, uh, let's call them more mainstream, the New York Times, the Atlantic, and she has a long-running series on Slate. Awards and distinctions, along with those writings, as they say, too numerous to name here. Lara Basildon, Basildon is a remarkable woman, and I am honored to talk with you today. Lara, thanks so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you. And the feeling is mutual. I'm really happy to be back talking to you. Oh, lovely. Well, I want to start with an oversimplification. Uh, you have two major areas that deeply concern you, wrongful convictions and restorative justice, and how mothers are perceived and treated in our society. And your books have touched on both of these deeply. Was there something in your family background, how you were raised, that stand out for you, that, that made these issues stand out for you? The answer is yes. I think as to both of the areas of particular interest to me, I am one of four children. We're all girls and our mom is a physician. So she went to medical school in the 1960s when most women were not doing that and then had a full-time career in addition to raising us. And both of my parents, I would describe as very 1970s feminists. They 
Mm -hmm. believed in the free to be you and me ethic of child raising. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with this album, but it was very groundbreaking at the time. And it had songs like mommies are people and how mommies can have different kinds of jobs and about boys and girls and gender stereotyping. So that was very much the sort of feminist grounding that I had. And then my family just has a history of, of, of service, particularly when it comes to civil rights and criminal justice reform. My grandfather was a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and he was really known for his opinions protecting the rights of the marginalized and especially people who were criminally accused and making sure that the Constitution was operating properly in those cases. So I think all of that kind of got passed down in the genes and the water and the osmosis and is pretty formative to the person that I am and, and becoming that person, sort of the choices that I made along the way. You mentioned to me that when you were writing Ambitious Like a Mother, that you came to the conclusion that you were more like your dad than like your mom. Can you describe what what that insight was? How are you more like your dad than your mom? It really didn't hit me until I wrote the book, but what ended up happening in my parents' relationship, as far as I could sort of tell growing up, but then also because I got to interview them to write the book, is that they met when they were very young. My mom was, I think, 17 and my dad was 19. And this was in the early 1960s. And there were very fixed ideas about gender norms. And I think for my dad's generation, he was pretty open-minded. And at the same time, he was really not very interested in doing anything domestic. So he's never cooked a meal that I know of, operated a vacuum cleaner that I know of, and the outsourcing of this domestic labor and taking us to appointments and things like that, that either fell to my mother or to various people that she was able to hire and pay to do that. And the other thing that was, I think, true about their marriage is that my mom, other than giving birth to my sisters and me, never spent a night away from home except to take her medical boards in Houston. And my dad traveled all the time for work. He was a trial lawyer, is a trial lawyer, extremely ambitious person. And he was gone a lot. And including for eight years, he had a case in Florida. And so for one week out of every month for eight years, he left and he did that case. And I remember when I was little being really angry about this, he would call to say goodnight and I would hang up on him because I was so angry. But I also remember that it was really important as I realized later for him to be there for his client. And so as I think about my own career trajectory, in fact, what ended up happening was I didn't have a whole lot of interest in domestic things. Although I'm competent at them, I don't particularly enjoy them, like cooking and carpooling and things like that. And I travel a lot for work, including I became a trial lawyer like my dad. And like my dad, I left a lot to to do my job. And so when I think about sort of the way he lived his life, which was that he had these ambitions and he had these passions and he did what he felt like he needed to do, I think I more adopted that model. And it didn't really occur to me until I was writing the book how alike we were in the way that we went after what we wanted. Mm. Went after what you wanted. That That is in and, in and of itself is something that's taking taking a long time, still taking a long time for women to be permitted to do, you know, to go after what we want. It's not viewed as right. a feminine thing. 
It's not viewed as a feminine thing. And I think for a lot of marriages, including mine, it's not conducive to your marriage succeeding. And I'm not suggesting that like there aren't marriages where that is possible, but it wasn't really possible in mine. And, and my mother has a very successful marriage, very successful marriage. And so I think there's costs. Yeah. Well, now you said you were angry at your dad that he was away that week out of the month, hang up the phone on him. As I've been reading and talking with you, you seem to be explaining to your kids or trying to explain to your son and daughter why you go away, why you are ambitious, why you want to do the things that you do. Did your parents uh, manage to give you and your sisters any explanations? They did. And I think my dad did the best he could to explain to five and six and seven-year-old me what was going on. I wasn't super interested in hearing it. It was later growing up that I had profound appreciation and respect for what both of my parents were trying to do, which was really in their own ways and their own professions, help people. And that resonated with me. I will also say that the takeaway was that I didn't have a lesser relationship with my dad. I didn't grow up full of resentment toward my dad. I'm very close to my dad. And like I said, he was a role model in so many ways. And that made me realize something else, which is that while your kids may be angry or resentful in the moment, it's not a long lasting thing when there is a good reason. And then in Ah. fact, you can have a very successful and close relationship with them. I feel equally close with my parents, although they made different choices. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be that thread of, ooh, we need to protect the kids. Ooh, ooh, this is this is tough. We better not talk to them about it because they'll get upset. Uh, when I think of some of my family experiences, openness would have been a much better choice <laughs> than not talking about things. You know, kids pick up what's going on around them. They have their own ways of thinking and perceiving and, and processing what's going on around them and, and uh, giving them the opportunity to talk is uh, so important. And uh, one of the things I, I loved in your writings was that uh, the Game of Thrones isn't, is who said Game of Thrones wasn't for kids? Um, I walked in on an episode, my mom was watching it, this, the series, and I walked in on one of the really nasty ones. So I never went back to see any other of it. And your children were, what, six and four? And they they asked you, what are you watching? What's this about? How, how did you explain Game of Thrones to your young children? This is pretty wild. But what ended up happening was I got so obsessed with Game of Thrones that I started listening to the book in the car. And so when I picked them up from daycare, it was on. And they would hear this British voice and this story, and I would just shut it off, but not fast enough. They got really engrossed in, in the characters <laughs> of the plot because it, it is quite engrossing. Yeah. And so I started to think about, okay, if I remove the rape and the incest and the mass decapitation, is there enough here plot-wise to keep them interested while I'm trying to, for example, get them to finish dinner. And this was a big issue because they were never able to sit in their chairs. They were always getting up. This would happen at home and in restaurants. And what they like to do was strap on their plastic armor and their plastic swords and fight to the death and (laughs) play each other. So it was kind of similar, just the four and six-year-old version. So I figured they're really interested in this story. If I can tell them the story edited maybe they'll sit in their chairs. So I tried it out as an experiment at home. And then I tried it out as an experiment 
in a restaurant when things started going really south. I think they got into a fight over who was going to sit where. One of them hit the other and one started screaming. And then I said, how about we talk about Game of Thrones? And that was um, mm. all I needed for a wrapped audience to eat their meal for the next half an hour. And what was funny about it was <laughs> there was this couple eating brunch next to us. And of course, when we sat down, they were just like, our meal is over. This is good to be awful. And I guess they heard me telling the story. And afterwards, the man and the couple told me, good job, mom. And I, <laughs> I remember thinking, this is very unorthodox, but actually they had a good meal and so did we. <laughs> I can't imagine trying to on the fly edit that story, but there are wonderful threads in it that uh, the the good guys and the bad guys, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, all of that stuff is really engaging to us little little mortal humans. That's wonderful. Well, the, I'm assuming that you made a conscious decision to become a mother. I did. I really wanted to have children. And it was interesting. I wasn't sure that I did. And then my older sister had a baby in the year 2000 when I was, I think, 26. God, how old was I? Yeah. And I remember just instantly having this bond and connection and outpouring of love toward my nephew. And I realized this is really, really important to me. And I, I really, I really do want to become a mother. It was a very intentional choice. Mm. And what about your law career? Did you see that and say, yes, I'm going to become a lawyer or what, what was the path to that? That story is kind of interesting too. So as I mentioned, my grandfather was a judge and he was completely passionate about this career that he lived in Washington, D.C. with my grandmother. We lived in Philadelphia and they would call once a week and we would talk on the phone. And he would always ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And this was when I was really little. And I would say, I want to be a ballerina or I was really into Princess Diana. And he, no matter what I said, would say, no, you want to be a lawyer. Say it. I want to hear you say it. And I would say it back. And then as I got older and I started reading his opinions and listening to my dad's stories, I thought you can really do a lot of incredibly important, interesting work if you're a lawyer. And so I I was drawn to it. And then I realized pretty quickly that I was, I wanted to do criminal defense work. And so I was one of those people who I kind of knew. And when I went to law school, I was pretty focused about what I wanted to be expert in specifically. So I guess it's a combination of it being drilled and in, <laughs> drilled into me and also just having kind of an interest in it anyway. Yeah. How would you describe that feeling of being ambitious? a longing to achieve? What's that drive? Oh, that's such a good question. So the definition of ambitious in the dictionary is something along the lines of wanting to be excellent in your chosen profession and wanting to be recognized for that excellence. And I think it comes, for me, it comes from a place of wanting to feel like my life has meaning and shape and purpose and that there's a reason for me to get up every day Mm-hmm. And feeling like that is part and parcel of making the world better, so that I think hopefully I make the world better because I have my children and they're good human beings and they're going to go out and do do things on their own. But I feel, in addition to that, that I'm supposed to also be contributing, and that I think my life mm-hmm. wouldn't have the same meaning to me if I wasn't doing that and wasn't using whatever innate 
and learned skills I have in pursuit of making the world better in my own small way. I guess that's how I would boil it down. Mm. Well, and I would say not so small your way. So you're a, you're a lawyer, you've had the training, but you're, you're a trial lawyer and you're also a law professor. What, what can you do? What do you do that's different in those two roles? I'm really fortunate that my job at USF is to be a clinical professor. So the way to analogize it is that, for example, when people are going through medical school and they're training in their residency, they're assigned to more experienced physicians to operate, go through various rotations so that they actually practice before they do it on their own. And it's mm-hmm. the same thing at many law schools, including USF, where we have what are called clinical training programs, where the professors have real cases, actual clients, and they work with the students. And the students are sort of apprentices or residents mm-hmm. in that medical sense, where they're very, very hands-on, but they have close supervision. So that's my main job. And what that allows me to do is continue to practice with a small pro bono law firm that's subsidized by the law school where my colleagues are my law students. So I get to do that. And I also get to step back and have a 10,000 foot view because I'm expected to publish and be a scholar. So I have to read widely in the literature. I have to make my own contributions in that respect. And then I do teach some classes that are more sort of straight up podium classes where you're standing at a podium and there's students in the, in the tiered seats. And so I teach criminal procedure and and a seminar on wrongful convictions. And that's more academic, right? Because you're explaining this is the fourth amendment, the fifth amendment, this is how wrongful convictions come to pass. And it's, it's not about having an actual client. It's about working through the legal system and how it works and doesn't work. And you're able to, to teach. I've done some teaching in my radio life and in previous activities. It's very gratifying to have not just because, ooh, I might influence these people, but that exchange of information, that it, it's a very close relationship, I think, student, intern, whatever you call it, and, and teacher, mentor. It is, and lines. I'd be curious to know if this is your experience. I sometimes find that my students teach me things that I wouldn't have otherwise learned. And they give me an entirely new perspective because I think when you've been doing whatever it is for a long time, whether it's radio hosting, whether it's lawyering, you can kind of get in a rut and lose lose perspective. Part of it's generational. And so when you have people coming in who are looking at it with fresh eyes or different perspectives, I think they make you better at your job. And so while it's my job to make my students lawyers, they make me a better lawyer. Yes, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, You know, I have a way of perceiving things, and this is how it makes sense to me to transmit it, pass it along. But not everybody learns in the same way, and not everybody has the same perspective on whatever your focus is. So it's it's always interesting to see what's going to come up when you're in a position of of teaching or mentoring. Uh, I just think that's a very exciting, a very exciting thing to do. So as a writer, and I'm, I'm gathering that your, your need to publish is part of the academic track that you're in, but you're clearly a natural writer. It, it seems to be something that 
as I read various things of yours, it, it seems to be really natural to you and almost a need to get across whatever the topic is, whatever the point of view is that you're working on at, at a given moment. I have a really interesting relationship with writing because I feel compelled to do it, but it's so hard and it never gets easier for me. And Ah. so I have an idea or it usually starts that I'm upset about something and I don't know why I feel the sense of outrage. And then I try to dig into the issue so I can learn more and more. And then once that happens, I feel like I have to either document it or express an opinion on it or both. And then I feel all this anxiety because every single time I think I'm going to sit down and I'm not going to be able to write. It's not. So this just happened to me this week. And I was just overcome with anxiety until it finally just came out of me. And then I had a sense of relief and then it starts all over again. Yes. yes. (laughs) And I always thought the more I do this, the less anxiety I will have or the less of a struggle that it will be. But it's not true. I think it's a really hard skill. And I think it's a muscle that you need to exercise. And at the same time, it's not the kind of thing where you ever get to a point, at least for me, where it's ever easier. And then I ask myself, well, then why am I doing this? Why, If it's so hard, why do I feel this need to, to do it? And I don't know, except I do. It's like a compulsion. Well, it's a, clearly an important form of expression for you. Um, not just that release of the intense feelings, but you have the ability and the opportunity to maybe change people's thinking, uh, to present new new perspectives, uh, expand people's thinking, like on how we think mothers are supposed to behave. What's a mother? What's motherhood? How are they supposed to behave and take care of their children? Um, you have made quite a point of the, the we'll, we'll call it the 70s feminism of balancing. Yes, we can balance career and family, career and motherhood. Uh, but you seem to be saying, mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> T- talk about that balancing act or the not balancing act. I think women have been sold a bill of goods because they're told that there is this thing called the work-life balance and they need to spend their whole life chasing after it. And I think that conception is fraudulent because there's no such thing as those two areas of your life being in perfect balance. It also implies that they're entirely siloed off from one another, which as we learned in the pandemic in particular, is not actually a thing or possible. And so my theory is that it's really about imbalance and about a helical symbol or an infinity symbol where one part is always coming up and the other part is going down and it changes. There's going to be days and times and hours and minutes where your career is going to be your primary focus, and then it's going to switch back and it's going to be your children. But this idea that you're holding them both in an equal position in your mind and perfect equipoise at the same time is (laughs) to me not just impossible, but untrue. And actually a little bit, maybe not intentionally, but in, in, in application, misogynistic, because it keeps women chasing after this impossible idea and wasting a lot of time and energy and feeling really guilty and ashamed in the process. And an idea that's not equally put onto male members of a family. Exactly. I mean, when dads take their kids to the supermarket, they get a standing ovation. And it's kind of silly because we have to do it all the time. Same thing with them taking them to the doctor or the orthodontist. And these are not feminine tasks. These are parental tasks. 
You're listening to a TNS conversation with Laura Bazelon and host Lions Filmer. You mentioned that uh, self-care, the idea of self-care was really not present uh, for your mom's generation. And, and I'm close to that generation as well. Um, yeah, you don't think about yourself. You put your children first, you put your career first. Uh, oh, it strikes me that the um, the attraction to the imbalance idea is that it it should lessen our anxiety. <sighs> that that's our mellow, uh, zen, uh, lovely space. Well, life is not like that. Excuse me. Um, and I mean, the simplistic no- understanding of, of Buddhism that I have is, you know, you're standing on nothing. Uh, the unexpected is what you you need to embrace <laughs> uh, and not even expect it, but be there when it happens. Um, so it, it does feel like that's a bill of goods, as you say, that that notion of, of being in balance is impossible. There's a, uh, my neighborhood has a little tiny mini park in it, and there's a tot area that has a seesaw. And we had a neighborhood Zoom talk last night about whether we're going to turn it into a dog park or not. And the seesaw came up in conversation, and that just seems like, yeah. I'm on a seesaw. The, the, the infinity symbol is, is a beautiful image for that as well, because it's, it's in motion, moving around and back and around and back. And I think that's more, more true to what our experience is than just up and down, up and down, up and down. Or the seesaw being perfectly balanced. Have you ever seen a seesaw remain in perfect balance for longer than a fraction of a second? Because I sure no. have not. No, <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. So you have said that or written that feminism today must be about more than structural change. We have to redefine what it means to be a good mother. And it's time for a new story. Where do we begin? One thing we can begin to do is, and you and I were speaking about this before, stop mm-hmm. thinking about a lot of parenting as specific to mothers. We hear a lot about mothers needing to do X, Y, and Z thing. And when you break down those tasks, you need to ask yourself, why are they gendered? What is inherently gendered about changing a diaper, going to the grocery store, making sure that you're the one at the PTA meeting or bringing the homemade stew to the potluck. And while we're on the homemade stew, why does it have to be homemade? Why can't you just bring something that you bought at a store and not feel mortally ashamed? I think there's all of these burdens that we placed on women. And honestly, it's been supercharged by social media, things like celebrities on Instagram who will tell you, oh, I make five movies a year and the most important thing for me is really to be with my children. And obviously, (laughs) there's so much going on behind the surface. And yet what women are seeing is I fit into my skinny jeans two days after I gave birth to twins and here's all of us happy on the beach and here I am at this premiere. It's all possible for you. It's just not the real true story, right? But we keep telling women the same story. There are certain things that only mothers can do or only mothers should do. And look at all these other amazing mothers out there. You can be just like them. And I don't think that either one of those things is the case. And so we need kind of 
as a collective to take a stance against that kind of false advertising and false characterization. So I think that that's a good place to start. And then we need to take another step forward and say there is absolutely nothing wrong with wanting things for yourself. That's not selfish. It's not selfish to want a career. It's it's actually, for a lot of people, including me, a financial imperative. It's a good way to model resilience and independence for your kids. We need to move forward in the way that we're defining what's acceptable for women to do rather than punishing and shaming women who want those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, earlier, it's not so much an issue now, it seems to me, but earlier in time, those of us women who chose not to be mothers had a certain amount of, oh, you're selfish. Oh, shameful. You should be having. I remember at the time I was making the decision not to be a mother, a friend said, well, don't you think you owe your parents grandchildren? (laughs) I was absolutely shocked. (laughs) Who on earth would think that? Fortunately, I did not have parents who were putting any pressure on me, but I know that's not the case for everyone. Uh, There always seems to be somebody who disagrees with whatever decision you make. How do you deal with, Laura, the criticism that you receive for the kind of, of mothering you do or mother you are? Yeah, that's a good question. And I I hear what you're saying because I think that women who choose not to be mothers get stigmatized as well. It's really a lose-lose situation. And there's nothing wrong with deciding that you don't want to have children. A lot of people who have children probably shouldn't have been mothers in the first place. And recognizing that that's not what's going to make you happy and making a different choice is something that we should all be celebrating and not stigmatizing people for. In terms of the pushback that I get, people say things to me like, well, if you never wanted to spend time with your children anyway, why did you have them? And it's not that I never want to spend time with them. I do spend time with them. I spend quality time with them. Or don't you really think that you're shortchanging them because you got a divorce rather than make your marriage work? Well, actually, no. I think that it was really important that that relationship terminate because it wasn't doing our kids any favors. And so we divorced when they were young and we have a very positive co-parenting relationship. And I feel really good about that decision. I think that there's things that I say and do that some women and men nod their heads and think that's what I think too. And then other people find very offensive and threatening. Mm -hmm. And to those people, I just say, it's good to step back and try to think about it in a different way. As I do, for example, with people who who choose to and can afford to stay at home, I am not interested in starting a mommy war. And I don't think there's anything wrong with staying at home. But mm-hmm. likewise, I don't think there's anything wrong with, if you have something important to do, leaving your kids for a few days to go do it. And yet saying that, I think for a lot of people is really an anathema. And there's a Pew Research poll that says that 25% of Americans think that it's harmful for children if their mothers work. Huh. God, really? 25% think that. Well, but there are other studies showing that the children of full-time working mothers do not do worse than the children of stay-at-home mothers. That is true. And I dug into that research with some trepidation, as you might imagine. But absolutely, mm. the results are that children of working mothers fare just as well, if not better, on some metrics than the children of stay-at-home mothers. And a lot of it is about that cliche of quality over quantity. Some studies have talked about 
the fact that if you look at quality time, sort of one-on-one time where you're focused on what your child is doing rather than just sort of being in the house with them, it's actually pretty similar for working in stay-at-home mothers, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because there's only a finite amount of time every day that you can be completely focused on what a three or a four or five-year-old is doing. Mm-hmm. You you write about uh, a, one of the women you interviewed for Ambitious Like a Mother. Her name is Daphne, and you, you refer to her frightening efficiency. And when I read that, I thought, whoa, that feels like Daphne is being intensely focused in every moment, whether it's on her work or on her children. And that ability to be that focused in every moment of the day is astounding, really powerful. Yeah, she's a really interesting example, kind of going back to this idea that we were talking about, about self-care and self-care not being something that was really even on the table or a term that existed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Daphne is someone, she's a lieutenant colonel in the military, works extremely hard, has three small children. She was deployed to, she was supposed to go to Afghanistan and they ended up sending her, I think, to Dubai. And she was gone, separated from her kids for eight months Mm. because of her military service and her deployment. And what she told me is that that was the first time she ever allowed herself to do any self-care because she worked very, very hard during the day. And she would wake up at four o'clock in the morning so that she could Zoom with her kids. I think it was nighttime for them, morning for her and vice versa. And she did that twice a day. But when she wasn't doing any of those things, she had time to herself. She took up painting, she took up yoga. And so it was really getting deployed to an adjacent war zone that allowed her to take some time for herself, which I found to be a pretty remarkable statement. Yeah. Well, the subtitle of Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Career is Good for Your Kids. And you have a lovely example of a a presentation you made at, at your school, excuse me, your son's school, or there were presentations going on. You had brought your store bought food. I did. <laughs> but, the, but when your son stood up, he said, I appreciate my parents for being lawyers because they get people out of jail. This really helps me reflect, do the right thing, and have positive role models. How profound. I, you know, I loved my parents, but neither of them was a good role model in the work world. So I, I'm I'm feeling a little bit envious here <laughs> of your son's experience, but that's so fabulous. So you're able to uh, model how a woman can function in the world, but very specifically what you do with your law career and the wrongful convictions and restorative justice. Uh, I'd love to have you talk about some specifics of that work and, and describe for us what restorative justice is. It's a phrase I've heard over the last couple decades, and I have some idea, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. Happily. So when it comes to my children and my work, you're right. I give them an up-close insider look into what's actually going on. So getting back to my son, for example, I have been doing some work for the district attorney here in San Francisco, chairing an innocence commission. And our job is to review wrongful conviction cases from the ground up and to make a recommendation to the DA. There's five of us. 
And our first case was completed in April. And we recommended that the district attorney seek to exonerate this person because we concluded that he was factually innocent. He had been in prison for 31 years. The judge set a hearing on April the 18th, and that happened to be my son's birthday. And I said, do you want to come to court on your birthday and see Mr. Syria get exonerated? The man's name is Joaquin Syria. I said, you don't have to, but if you want to, we can do this. And he, he wanted to go and my daughter wanted to go. So we all went and they got to see it happen. And it was very, very emotional and meaningful for them to see this man appear in court and, and have his conviction overturned and have his life returned to him. So they do see that. And I think that they really understand that this is profoundly important, even though it often means that I'm distracted or perhaps traveling. And then we also talk about the restorative just, justice aspect of it. You asked me about it, and it's really about trying to deal with the harm that has already happened. And that harm can be a number mm-hmm. of things, but in, it can be a wrongful conviction, which is essentially an earthquake. And a lot of times you have extensive trauma, and it's not just for the people who've been locked up. It's for the victims' families and the victims who have been told we got the right person, and then they have to relive the entire thing and realize that that the right person was not was not arrested, was not convicted, and worse, the wrong person was, and maybe they'll never get that traditional justice in the sense that they were promised and imagined. So there's a lot of of trauma and heartbreak, and also some commonality between the two sides in terms of what they went through and feeling betrayed by our system of laws. And so bringing those people together can also be very profound, in part because it requires coming together through common experiences, but also breaching these really profound divides, because of course, you're talking about people who are on opposite sides of the courtroom. And what I try to model with my kids, just kind of going back to the personal realm is, for example, you know, mom and dad can can decide that they don't want to live together and it's not a good idea for us to be married, but that doesn't mean that we don't still love each other or that we're not still a family or that we can't bridge our divides. You can imagine us on opposite sides of the courtroom. We chose to never do that and mm-hmm. have a mediated settlement, but we also very intentionally chose to always put our children above whatever personal disagreements we had and to make it very, very clear to them that they were always our priority. And it's our own sort of writ small form of restorative justice where we realize there's sort of a bigger goal and there can be a lot of healing after a big breach. And, you know, divorce for children is a big breach. It's a big betrayal for them. And we owe it to them to try to do whatever we can to make it up. And I think he and I both believe in that pretty profoundly. Mm. You uh, had a piece published just this past Wednesday in New York Magazine about Adnan Syed. And in that piece, you say twice, and the second time it's the final line of the piece, that is how the legal system was designed. And this is in the context, again, of a, a wrongful conviction. And you clearly don't mean that as a compliment. This is how the legal system was designed. Go into that a bit. What do you mean? This is hard for me to talk about, quite frankly, without getting very angry. When I went to law school, and a little bit the way I was raised, it was, we have the best legal system in the world, and it is a justice-delivering system. And having been in the guts of that system now for over 20 years, I can tell you that that is not what it is. It is a criminal legal system, not a criminal justice system. It quite often Mm. does not dispense justice. It dispenses convictions 
And sometimes they're rightfully obtained and sometimes they're wrongfully obtained. But in both cases, the system is designed to uphold them and cement them. And obviously, that's a huge problem when, for example, as in Syed's case, prosecutors cheated and broke the rules to convict him when his own lawyer was so terrible at her job that she fell down under constitutional standards of representation. And yet the system fought that conviction for 23 years and 23 years, sadly, isn't even the worst of it. I just mentioned Mr. Syria. He did 31. My client in LA did 34. And that case in particular, the first one, my client cash register, it was deeply disturbing to realize that the way that the system was designed to operate and did in his case was to double and triple down. It didn't matter how much evidence we brought the Los Angeles district attorney's office that cash was innocent. They pushed forward. They demanded to try him all over again. And in the middle of that trial, after the key eyewitness said, for all she knew, the killer might've been Magic Johnson, <laughs> the judge called us up to the bench and said, what are, basically, what are we doing here? And to the prosecutor, do you really think that Mr. Register is guilty? And he said, what I know is that 12 people convicted him in 1979. And that was true because an all-white jury in 1979 believed that this 18-year-old Black teenager had murdered an elderly white man who he didn't know, despite the fact they had an alibi, based on perjured testimony that prosecutors knew was false. And that this prosecutor, 34 years later, absolutely knew was false. And yet he was doing, quote unquote, his job which was to fight to keep my client locked up. And he fought to the bitter end. And he said in his closing that the star witness was a loon and a flake. And yet, <laughs> and yet he told the judge, you need to believe her and you need to keep this man locked up. So that is what I mean when I say the system is operating as designed. There's nothing that this prosecutor did that was remotely out of the ordinary. He was doing what his office told him to do. He was doing what he was supposed to do as a high-level bureaucrat in this machine, this innocence-denying machine. And that is almost always the way that it works in these cases. It doesn't matter how much evidence you have. The only thing they care about was that 12 people convicted in 19-whatever, and they are going to fight to the bitter end, even though you have to be out of your mind to believe that that person still belonged there. Mm-hmm. I I think first of all I can understand why you are so angry. That is one of the more shocking stories that one can hear. It's appalling, and it reminds me of what I I said earlier about why we want mothers to believe they can oh have this lovely balanced life. It's tidy. Uh, ooh, there's a right and a wrong. Um, we don't have to negotiate subtleties or, or negotiate back and forth, you know, being on the opposite sides that, that feels, uh, what am I trying to say? You know, in my body, that's, that's, um, such a, a, sorry, I'm losing my, my ability to speak over this. It is such a contrast pro con, right, wrong having those tidy distinctions seems to soothe us in some way, reduces anxiety, maybe. Yes. And it makes us think that we live in a sane and a just world. And it makes us think that we have some control over our fates and the fates of our children. Because I think to acknowledge the kind of chaos that you and I have been talking about is to realize, as you were saying earlier when you were talking about this Buddhist philosophy, that we're standing on nothing. 
And most people would rather believe anything but that. I would rather believe I had something to stand on. Me too. <laughs> but, but my life experience tells me differently. <laughs> wow. So in this uh, sometimes corrupt system that sometimes comes up with wrongful convictions, how do you continue to function as a lawyer? Are you, are you working from the inside to help repair a broken system? How does it look to you? I've been thinking a lot about, and maybe this is another book, but whether we stigmatize rage too much, particularly in, in women, and that it's really bad to be an angry woman. We think about red-faced shrews. We think about women being emotionally unstable or screechy or shrill. But part of it for me is that I think I am chronically angry. And I had a hard time admitting that for a while, but now I think that is part of the fire and the energy that makes me keep going because this job does not get any easier. And interestingly, even though I've been doing it for 20 years, I still find oftentimes that the indignities, small and large, persist, whether it's what I just described to you, these kind of arguments that are made about my clients, or we recently had a case where at the end of this very long interview with the detective, he said to me, I just still really don't believe that you're a lawyer, never mind a law professor. You just don't look like one. And Ooh. it doesn't seem to matter that I'm almost 50 or that I've been doing it for 22 years, things like that. So I think that being sort of placid or zen about it maybe would make me lose a little bit of passion and focus. And so I think there is a role for anger. I'm not saying that you should go around being consumed by a murderous rage and throttle people or treat people badly. But I think that righteous indignation probably has somewhat of a role to play in the fact that I keep going. And I also think that my mom said this, and I think it's a Jewish saying, but she said this to me after Cash was exonerated, if you save one life, you save the world. And Jews believe that. So that if you if you are able to even help one person and you can kind of focus on a very micro level, it feels meaningful. And then when you pull back and you see just how massive the injustices are, you feel completely powerless. So I try to keep my head down a lot because when you look up, the 10,000 foot view can feel really daunting. Well, you dear folks out there in the viewing and listening audience, uh, I'm Lyons Filmer here with Laura Bazelon talking about her work as a lawyer in restorative justice and as a mother who chooses to have a career as well. And Laura, the, the, this your most recent book, Ambitious Like a Mother, it's really making the argument that is the subtitle, why prioritizing your career is good for your kids. And I'm completely convinced. Uh <laughs> I'm so glad. Yes. Absolutely. Not that I was doubting you ever before, but <laughs> I'm really convinced. Um, just awesome. Awesome what you are doing. Now, you have another book that you, the book about anger in women being stigmatized, you said, mm, that might need to be another book, but you are working on something now. The uh, Ambitious Like a Mother, I think, came out in April of this year. Is that right? Yes. I, yeah. It did come out in April and I have been working on my second novel for about a year and a half, but it's been, it's been a struggle for me. It also comes out of some experiences that I've had 
um, actually as a professional litigating these cases, they're called Title IX cases, where there is an allegation on a college campus of a sexual assault. And then the burden is on the campus. The obligation legally is on the campus to try to, to try to adjudicate it. Mm-hmm. And um, my clinic became involved in a very unusual case in, in 2018, pretty much by accident, but the young man who'd been accused was black and he'd been accused by someone who was white. And there had been a lot of race-based retaliation and harassment of him that was very, very concerning. And then the allegations themselves were extremely murky and the process that the school used, which was common at the time, was to not have a hearing or any sort of cross-examination, but instead to hire one person who did everything. So she um, collected the evidence and interviewed the witnesses, and then she came to the legal conclusion and recommended the punishment. And it was disturbing to watch that play out. We came in at the tail end after she had found him responsible and they had determined that he was going to be expelled. So we came in and appealed internally. But working through the crucible of that case, it made me realize how much racial bias plays into everything, including Title IX allegations. And I started looking into the research about them and it's it's concerning the outcomes that are that are sort of that have to do that intersect with race, but also concerning was the amount of process that we're giving people who are accused. And it's controversial. The amount, the amount okay. of process we're giving people who are accused. I don't quite follow that. Sorry, I'm I'm acting like a lawyer. Meaning, <laughs> meaning that if you bring a serious allegation against somebody in my world, they get to go to court. And of course, there has to be a certain amount of proof. It's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Each side gets to present their case. And both sides, if if the defense presents one, are subject to cross-examination by the other. In these situations, the thinking is, well, you're not in court. You're not going to jail. This is a campus proceeding. It's administrative in nature. And we're really all about sort of rehabilitation. So we're going to use a much lower standard, basically 5149, about whether we think you did it. And then we're going to impose some kind of, we're going to call it finding you responsible, not guilty. And we're going to impose some kind of discipline rather than a punishment. But in point of fact, most people get found responsible without any cross-examination or or an airing out of this evidence. And then most people get expelled. And when you look at those outcomes, really they're being accused and convicted of crimes and they're not going to jail. But if you have been found to have committed a sexual offense and, and expelled, you're never getting an education again. No school would ever let you in. So, so you are being punished. You are being punished. It's very consequential. And the discomfort is that, of course, you and I know this well, for years, decades, women were saying these horrible things happened to me. I've been assaulted. I've been raped. And people disbelieved them. I mean, for a while, it wasn't illegal to rape your wife. For a long time, you had to have an eyewitness who wasn't one of the two people come to court. I mean, we had rules in place that were archaic, that were misogynistic, that made it almost impossible for women who were victims to get justice. And then, of course, we had the Me Too movement and all of the good that came out of that. And at the same time, we cannot say we're carving out an exception for certain kinds of allegations where we're just going to strip you of any right to, to due process. And that is... In my experience, what is happening in a lot of these campuses. And so my novel tries to kind of get at that through through fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's just tricky. It's tricky to write as a woman. It's tricky to write about the racial components of these things and, and make it 
not a screed or too one-sided and also not make it so that it's it's sort of there's a lot of people that wouldn't even read it because they would think oh you're too much of a me too person or you're too much of a rape apologist and fall into these really binary camps that are pretty terrible we don't really allow for this idea that there's a lot of ambiguity in especially relationships where people know each other and have been in intimate partner relationships etc and instead we always have to come down on one side or the other side or be associated with people who quote unquote are not in our our group right and so it's been uncomfortable for me and interesting in the sense that the people who are really pushing for due process in these cases tend to actually be more conservative folks who I don't agree with about anything else so it's very uncomfortable and yet I'm an old school liberal and that I believe very much in the presumption of innocence, no matter what you're accused of. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Laura Bazelon and host Lyons Filmer. Laura Bazelon, thank you so much for talking with me this morning. I've so enjoyed our conversation. And I wish we could talk forever. Thank you so much. Easily, easily. We now have time for questions from our audience or more from me, from Kamala and Kira. And I would love to have anybody who wants to uh, put up questions. Now I'm looking at the chat. Uh, we've got one question. Have you worked with any wrongfully accused women in your law practice? Have you talked with them about any of these issues? I love that question. I have a really close colleague named Valina Beatty. She's a law professor at Arizona State University. And before that, she ran an innocence project at West Virginia University School of Law. And her new book is called Manifesting Justice. And it's all about wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted women. And the huge Venn diagram overlap between that and being part of the LGBTQ community, uh, yeah. which there is a big intersection there. And her book is also about how the innocence movement and some of the fiercest advocates for the wrongfully convicted are often overlooked in favor of men. So you have many women who have done pioneering work who also tend to be queer who aren't really getting the spotlight that they deserve either. And I love everything about the book because she tells her own story. She tells the story of these three women and how two of them ended up being falsely accused and convicted of of sexually assaulting the other. These were queer women. She goes through the statistics and, you know, to be clear, the vast majority of crimes are committed by men. I think something like over 90% of crimes are, are, are as violent ones are committed by men. And so the percentage of wrongfully convicted women is just much, much smaller, mm-hmm. but it's real. And they are overrepresented in certain cases. For example, they are overrepresented in child death cases. These are cases where oftentimes it wasn't a crime. So for example, the child died of natural causes or SIDS, but they think somehow that the mother did something. And so she will be prosecuted for that. They're overrepresented and these so-called shaken baby abusive head trauma cases, which again is often about some other cause, but they attribute it to come some kind of violence by the mother. There's something called criminalized survival where women in intimate partner relationships who are severely abused will fight back and, and kill their abuser. And so then they're charged with murder in those cases. And so Valina's book is really an exploration of this whole phenomenon. Mm. To answer the question more pointedly, 
I have had one client falsely accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault on campus who was a woman, but I have never had someone, I've never had a female wrongfully convicted client. Oh, no, that's not true. I have, I have, I have. I had a, I had a client, her name was Maria Mendez, and she was falsely accused of murdering her grandson. And it was the shaken baby abuse head trauma case. So I have had, I've had two. So, so she was uh, uh, found guilty in that case. And it was a, a redoing of the case. She was, it was really so tragic. She had come here from Central America or maybe Mexico. Um, she was very poor. She did not speak fluent English. She had 10 children. They did not have a lot of money. One of her daughters gave birth as a teen and Maria was really the caretaker for this child, but also caring for all of these other children. And looking back at all the evidence, this was a child who was very ill from birth and had all sorts of medical complications. He then did I mean, according to Maria, and I believe her, fall and suffer a catastrophic injury. But the consensus with the experts at the time was that, no, these were a series of injuries that really she must have inflicted on him. And that's not actually what the evidence supported on closer examination. And also as the science has kind of developed around how these early onset injuries can manifest later or early onset issues about brain development and utero and bone development and utero can manifest later on. But it took a long time to kind of unpeel and unstick all of that. And she was convicted of second degree murder and she was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. So it was just a horribly sad case where really no one in her family wanted that. No one in her family believed that she had done anything. It ripped apart this family. It was incredibly sad. Well, your point about um, as the, as our, well, I'll just call it the science, the, the forensic science around those kinds of things, the, child development in utero, bone, brain, et cetera, et cetera. As we've seen with DNA material, um, things can change so amazingly uh, as our knowledge expands that hopefully it will get a little better. I think with these kinds of cases, it is, it is really starting to change. And I guess the other thing about Maria's case that I thought was so incredibly poignant and they weaponized this was that the police arrested her and they interrogated her. And she kept saying, she kept saying, me culpa, me culpa, because she felt so guilty about what had happened because she was supposed to be taking care of him, but she had other kids. She was vacuuming, cleaning the house. And she wasn't there when, when he fell and this thing happened. She felt guilty. And they used that as her saying that she was guilty of hurting him. Mm-hmm. And it really just cuts me to the quick because I think that that's always our impulse, particularly as mothers, to think that everything is our fault. And they just took those two words and they built a whole case around it. And it makes me so sad to think about. And it kind of goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier about what expectations we put on mothers and how we stereotype them and how we punish them. And this was a really stark example of that. There was another question um, I want to get to. Do you see the women law students you work with at the clinics struggling with these issues? Have you helped or counseled them? What's your relationship in that way? I do see them struggling with these issues. And I do try to counsel them when they ask for my advice. Some of my students 
are already mothers. USF has a really diverse student body. We have older students. We have students who can only go part-time, so they, they graduate on a slower track. And so I have some of those folks, and then I have a lot of women who want to become mothers and are unsure how that's all going to work for them. So what I very intentionally tried to do is be really honest about what it looks like, because I worry about these Instagram, Facebook images, and I worry that they're being told to try to strive for something that's not possible. So for example, when I was going up for tenure, I was told by my tenure advisor, and I believe this person really wanted to help me, do not talk about your kids. Don't use them as an excuse. Don't even have pictures of them in your office. People are going to think that you're not up to the job. And my feeling was, if this law school doesn't understand that I'm a single parent and I'm going to have to leave early and not go to certain events in the evening because I have small children, I don't want to work there. And if that's the paradigm, it needs to shift. And so I was very upfront about what my parental responsibilities were On the converse, I'm also really clear with my students, this is sort of what it looks like. I don't pretend that it's simple or easy. I'll just give you an example. I had a crazy case. It was actually the one that we were talking about of this young man who was accused of sexual assault and all these terrible things happened to him on campus. Anyway, we asked for extra time to appeal his case because we were new and the school responded by taking away a day. So rather than giving us an extra day, they took one away. They told me that at 4.30 in the afternoon, they said, your appeal is due at 11.59 tonight. And I had my jacket on. I was leaving to go get my kids from daycare. And I realized I couldn't. My students were there. And I thought about shutting the door and calling my ex-husband and explaining. And then I thought, you know, they need to actually hear what what this looks like. So I called him in front of them. And they listened to the whole conversation of me explaining just the, the the awful inconvenience, the bizarre situation that we found ourselves in, and then just what a struggle it was for us to come up with a solution. And I feel like that's really important for them to see. Like this is not an easy thing to pull off, and it's oftentimes really messy. This is real life. It's real. Yeah, it's real. Another question: Do you ever ask your kids what they want to be when they grow up? like your grandfather asked you, do you think that that question influenced your career? You kind of said yes, maybe earlier. <laughs> I think I think I was very influenced. I do not ask my kids what they want to be when they grow up. I think it's really up to them to decide. I do not put my thumb on the scale. It would not surprise me if they ran as far away from being a lawyer as they possibly could. Although I will say that I was talking to them earlier this week about we're doing this mock trial in my class. And I said, oh, and my staff attorney is going to play the judge and I'm going to be the witness. And my daughter said, I want to be the judge. And I said, well, you have to go to school. You cannot be the judge. And we fought about it. And I said, no, no, no. And then she made a whole PowerPoint why I should be the judge. Ah. There was a picture of Judge Judy. There was an explanation of her judicial skills. She's 11. And she sold me on it. I said, okay, I picked her up early. This was yesterday. And I gave her a robe and I gave her my grandfather's gavel and we put her right up there. She got to co-judge with my staff attorney. And I think she got a lot out of it. Oh, sure. Afterwards, she said, mom, I think I'm a really good judge. And I was like, you know what? I think think you are too. You really were very fair. So I don't know what this is ultimately going to mean for her, but I try (laughs) to encourage them in what they want, right? If they're interested in theater arts, if they're interested in baseball, I just say, go for it. Well, it shows that you're listening really closely. I mean, that's listening has got to be maybe the bottom line skill 
for a mother or a parent of any any gender and for your work in the law. That's a very perceptive comment because the key to being a good trial lawyer is, is active listening. It's really easy to walk into court and have a script and read off your script. And you are not a good lawyer when you're doing that. All kinds of things happen unexpectedly. Witnesses say crazy things. And if you're not listening closely, you'll miss it. You're just focused on what's my next question on my script. I'm sure you know this as a radio host. You have ideas about questions and then the conversation will take a turn and you'll ask something different. That's the way to be a good interlocutor. It's also the way to be a good lawyer and it's a way to be a good parent. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Wonderful. How do your kids do uh, on the listening score? Are they able to listen to you? I mean, let's give them a break age and experience, but clearly your kids have a very high level of thinking, both of them, both your daughter and your son. They really do. They are good listeners and they're very strong, sturdy people with, I think, a strong moral compass. And I'll give you an example of that. We had a recall election here in San Francisco with our district attorney. And prior to that, there were a series of debates and there was a debate at the Commonwealth Club Before the recall, and I was asked to be the incumbent DA's surrogate debating the person who who is now who is now our new DA. And this was at the Commonwealth Club. And I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Commonwealth Club, but it's quite a highbrow, kind of stuffy place. And they had assured me that this was going to be a very civilized discussion, not even a debate, et cetera. And the people who were very pro-recall bought all the tickets and gave them out to kind of the most vociferous recall supporters. And it was quite nasty in there. People were screaming and heckling, calling me names. And my ex-husband and my kids were there because I thought it was going to be a civics lesson for them. Uh And it got really bad. And he left with my daughter and he told my son, it's time to go. And my son said, no. And then at the end of the whole thing, they kind of whisked my son and me back into the green room and then told us, you need to leave as soon as possible. It just didn't really feel like a safe environment. And my son was 13. And on the way home, I said, why did you stay? Because it was pretty terrible. And it was very personally directed at me, Mm -hmm. even though obviously I wasn't the DA because the anger was just so palpable and had nowhere else to go. And he said, mom, I was not going to leave you alone in there, those people. And I was just, it was like his leaf about his less, his moral lessons. And I just felt like what an amazing human being, you know, he was there to protect his mother. And I thought to myself, like, this is an amazing child. <laughs> and, and you're, you know, you asked me about listening. He sat there and listened to some stuff that really a 13 year old really shouldn't have to listen to about their mother. And he did it because he felt like it was important for him to be there for me. And I, to me, that's very profound. Yes, indeed. And still is a civics lesson for them. Yes. Seeing how how people can, that their anger or other emotions can overwhelm everything else. And I'm fantasizing what that session was like, but that the, the, the basic points get lost sometimes. Yes. When emotions have taken us over. And then we don't have civil discourse. We have very uncivil discourse. 
That's right. And it's really sad. And that's a very, you know, that's one example. I mean, you and I could talk about it on a national level. We could talk about it on a statewide or local level. When you want to talk about crime and punishment or environmental justice or pick your issue, voting rights, these are really complicated issues. And there's a lot of nuance there. And it's important to be able to talk across across political party or or ideology. And, and we're often just not able to. People are too angry. And it becomes this very vitriolic situation that's not conducive to reaching any kind of a bigger understanding or even consensus on some basic facts. Mm-hmm. Given all of social media's influence, I don't, and I don't know if you can answer this question, do you see, and let's put it in, in the legal context, is there more of this outrage and emotions uh, overtaking our ability to have civil discussion presently versus, say, 20, 40, 50 years ago? Yes. I think social media is this double-edged sword because it's very democratizing in the sense that everybody can be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And because everybody can be part of the conversation, at the touch of a button, there's no filter, there's no edit, and there's no ability to really catch yourself in a moment of of anger, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. how many times have you thought, okay, I have this idea and and I'm really, really angry, but to actually put it into action, I'd have to take these three steps. I'd have to go call this person or meet them in person or do X, Y, and Z versus I'm so overtaken with anger and here's Twitter and here's Facebook and here's, and you just do it. And I think that's what people are doing every day constantly. It's tempting for me sometimes, you know, you read something that someone wrote about you that's incredibly nasty. And if you let it, it can ruin your whole day or you end up in some kind of a back and forth with them. And then you're thinking, I don't even know this person. And I just lost two hours of my life that I'm never going to get back telling them that I'm not a horrible person, which I'm not going to convince them of. And who cares anyway? And so I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that we can communicate more easily and that more people can participate. And at the same time, I think the guardrails have really fallen off. Yeah. Well, perhaps this is another example of self-care. Yes. You choose what you're going to respond to and spend your time on. Yes. (laughs) Is there anything... Laura, that that you've got on your mind now that we haven't touched on yet this morning? I don't think so. Other than to say, I think that I'm very thankful to Mesa Refuge because I think they encourage people with somewhat unorthodox views, such as myself, in all kinds of ways to be in this really beautiful place and be creative. And so I'm very grateful and thankful to Mesa for taking me in in 2017, allowing me to finish my book for all the opportunities that they offer to artists everywhere. And I'm really grateful to you, Lyons, because I think that you've made it your life's work to really engage with people who have interesting ideas and help push those ideas out into the world. And that's really important. It's so exciting to me to talk with the people who come to Mesa Refuge Writers Retreat, including you, Laura Bazelon. The one can look at the world, certainly if one looks at the news or social media feeds, you can get pretty damn depressed. Yes. Feel pretty hopeless about the human race. So talking with people like you is, is self-care for me. Uh, I learn that there are amazing, good folks doing their damnedest out in the world. Uh, 
And I'm not only grateful for that, I really admire it. So thank you for spending this time with me and with our audience. Thank you for having me back. I love talking to you. Oh, great. Laura Bazelon, folks, look her up online, read her books. Uh, If you like to go on to Slate, she's got a long running series of uh, short articles there. Really, really wonderful thinking, Laura. Love to love to see how your your mind and your heart are working. I'm Lyons Filmer for KWMR and Mesa Refuge Writers Retreat and the New School at Commonweal. Turn it back over to Kamala Tully. I just want to thank you, um, both of you, Lyons and Lara, for this riveting conversation. Um, Lara, you are breaking new ground, and I so appreciate how you're working tirelessly as a professor, as a lawyer, as a writer, and a mother uh, every day uh, trying to make this world a better place. So I just want to thank you both, and I'll turn it over to Kira. Great. Thank you, Kamala. Absolutely. I'll I'll just repeat what Kamala said. Laura, thank you so much for being with us, for your time today, uh, for everything you do in the world and how you are pioneering different ways to juggle career and motherhood. Um, And thank you, Lyons and Flavia, for bringing your skills and wisdom to the conversation as well. Um, We will have the recordings produced of this conversation in about a week or two on our websites tns.commonweal.org and mesarefuge.org and be sure to find The New School on YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or Spotify and like and subscribe for more conversations about nature, culture and the inner life. Uh, Join us in October for the next conversation in the Empowering Women series. Lara Bazelon and host Lyons Filmer and everyone at the Mesa Refuge Thank you for joining us at the New School in Commonweal. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Lara Bazelon and host Lyons Filmer. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.